Welcome to the Columbia Church Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We're so excited to share this weekend's message with you from Dr. Jim Baucom, our senior pastor. We hope it encourages you, inspires you, and helps you grow in your faith as a whole life disciple. Now, enjoy the message. And Columbia, in response to that uh, giving moment from our elders, thank you for the way you take care of us and love us and for being uh, really delightful people to serve. It is a, it is a great honor uh, to serve here, and I think I speak on all uh, behalf of all of our staff when, when I say that. I will tell you that I approach today's sermon with a little bit of uh, fear and trepidation. It's been a week of spiritual warfare in some ways. I've had more couples call me with issues this week than I can ever remember in any week in 20 years here which is remarkable when I'm getting ready to teach on on marriage. This is a profound and difficult uh, passage uh, to deal with. And and I've just had a lot of anticipation uh, about it. And for that reason, I really didn't sleep well last night at all, which is pretty unusual, Debbie will tell you, for me. Uh, But I just think this thing was rolling around in, in my head. And that tells me that it is meant for somebody And I've already had people come to me from the earlier service and say it was specifically targeted toward them. Now, you know, I never specifically target a sermon to anyone except me. I preach to me, and if you happen to overhear, that's the Holy Spirit. But I'm dealing with Paul's famous passage from Ephesians 5 on marriage. If you study marriage in the Bible, you're going to arrive at this passage pretty quickly. In fact, I guess it's the touchstone of all Scripture when it comes to understanding how we should comport ourselves within marriage. It's a tight little compact piece, but it just, it just contains a lot. Before we get into it, I want to ask you about the number one. And, uh, you know, I started to do that with a, a, a kind of a, a, a vampire voice, but decided that not everybody would understand the Sesame Street analogy. So the number one, do you understand the number one? And one's an interesting number, uh, I think you have to say. I mean, it's the beginning. So uh, it symbolizes new beginnings in numerology, which I'm not big into, but number one is huge. Philosophically, it's been huge. Plato thought this was God's number. And uh, you may go, well, wait a second. I thought it was like seven or something like that. Seven is a perfect number in the Bible. Three is important in the Bible. But, you know, Genesis begins with one, and, and that's reiterated. And Plato thought that there was the fullness of the number one, that uh, the completeness of the number one that indicated that this was, this was God's number. Mathematicians are fascinated with the number one. It is, as you may or may not know, it is the only integer that is divisible by one and divisible by itself and yet yet not a prime number. And having said that, mathematicians only decided about 75 years ago that it was not a prime integer. So for you mathematicians, it just proves to me you do change your mind. I mean, that's not a scientific thing. You just changed your mind on that one. So don't try to tell me your spreadsheets are always right. Sometimes they are not. Whatever the case, one is a really interesting fascinating number. You can't get to anything else without going through it. It can indicate lots of different things. All of you've got one of these in your closet somewhere, you know, one you can't pull out anymore because your team's not named what it says on there anymore. You know what I'm talking about, but you could have a college number or something like that. You've got a foam finger one somewhere, stored somewhere, unless you're married to Debbie, in which case it got given away or thrown away a long time ago. But we have owned these before, and you outgrow these. They're silly. They get in the way of the person behind you. But we all know what we're trying to say. Everybody say it with me. Just say, we are 
number one. I don't know what we mean by that, but let's say Columbia. We need a Columbia finger like that, right? It says we are, we are number one. We have, I think in our culture especially, but probably innate to human nature is this desire to be number one, primo, at the top of the heap, the commander in charge. Sort of we like that idea. I think Americans tend to love the notion that we are the nation, are the world's largest economy. We are number one. That may not last much longer, so we may have to get used to number two or three, though some people are hanging on with their fingernails to that number one rating. You want it. You want the number one. So, you know, it's a big deal. If you look it up in the dictionary, you pronounce it one. I don't understand the schwa in the middle there, but anyway, when or whatever. It's being a single unit or thing. It's being one in particular. It's being preeminently what is indicated. It's being the same in kind or quality. And probably most prescient to our discussion, it's being in agreement or union. So when we use the word with regard to anything in the Bible, we're usually talking about its agreement. So the body of Christ is one, right? And we have one faith, Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. God himself said to be one. Jesus is spoken of as the one. When we talk about that, we're speaking about points of agreement. And when we talk about God, we are because in the Trinity, we find the mystery of the three in one, completely in unison, totally in harmony. Everything that relationship is meant to be in our lives indicated by that oneness of God. Now, my question for you is, what is Excuse me, one is one infinitely more than one. Can you answer that? Just tell your neighbor what you think. When is one infinitely more than one? Well, I bet you got this one right because you're in church. And when you're in church, you give a Sunday school answer. So the answer is when that one is God. And you go, well, of course, I mean, that's pretty obvious, but it's amazing how often the Scripture speaks in this way. From beginning to end, of the Bible. God's spoken of as being the the beginning and the end himself, but he is spoken of as as being one. And that's famously true in Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4, and 5. Those two verses comprise what we call the Shema. It's probably the most important scripture in all of Judaism. It's one of the most important scriptures to us. It's the premier familial scripture of the Old Testament. So it says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is what? Is one. Now, what you need to know about this is that that word that is translated one here is the Hebrew word echad. You might want to say that. It's kind of fun because you will, if you say it correctly, spit on the back of the person who's in front of you. So maybe don't say it. We're not in the right, this isn't the right season for that. Sorry. Pandemic. No, no, no saying of this word except deep in your soul, you can say echad, just like that. It's not, a, I told you in your soul, Charles, it's not, it's not a word that is uncommon in the Old Testament. In fact, it occurs almost a thousand times, and it can be used in many different ways. So, echad can mean like a single entity. It can mean one thing. It can talk about one in numerous ways, but there are only two places where the word is used to modify the sentence in the way it is here. And here it is what we call in Hebrew a double noun. Now, in English, we might say this is a pronoun. It describes the noun, but in, in Hebrew, often you'll get sort of a formulation that this equals this, and so it's two nouns that sort of come together to form 
form a single entity, as it were. And in this case, we're saying that God is not like one. One does not describe God. God is oneness. He is echad. I told you, only two places in all the Bible is the word used like this. And if you've been around me long enough, you know what the other one is. You know where I'm headed. But for this point, let's just say that this oneness of God is a, is a mysterious thing. It's a rich thing. It's, it's a magnificent thing. What we're saying is that God is a fullness. He is a completeness. There is nothing else needed to make God what God needs to be. God is what God is all the time, yesterday, today, forever. God is God, and, and we measure everything else by God. He's the standard of perfection. He is the absolute entity of our lives and of the universe. So when we say that this oneness is a big deal, we really mean that it is. You can see how Plato arrived at his idea that one is God's number. It's not that God is only one or entity or whatever. It's that God is oneness. He is a sacred, harmonious oneness. Now where this occurs again, the second place in the Bible where you see it used like this is in Genesis 2.24, which Paul is going to reference today. So I need you to understand very clearly this background. When Paul writes, he is leaning very heavily on the theology of the Old Testament, which he knows by heart. He's a Pharisee of Pharisees, and he knows the Old Testament. So when Paul references the Old Testament, we have to pay attention to it, and he does it often. And in this passage, this is going to be the linchpin of his whole theology and understanding of marriage. Genesis 2:24. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become, say it with me, one flesh. In some translations, it would just say, they become one. Echad. They become a sacred oneness. You see how the same equation, this equals this. It's not that they are described by this, but that a great marriage, a covenant marriage formed by God is this. It is a sacred oneness, a completion, a wholeness. Now, we have to understand a couple of important things when we look at this scripture. I know you remember the story it's attached to. So, you know, Adam is unable to find a helper among all the animals who is suitable for him. And when we see that suitable, it, it, it doesn't just mean that something doesn't fit him. It means that he's not, nothing else makes him whole. Nothing else makes him feel completed. And God observes this. And it's not like God makes up his mind in the moment. It's the narrative. It's the way the story is told. And so in this case, God says, yeah, I don't want that because God has a wholeness in his relationship of three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He wants that projected into his creation. And so God says, I'm going to take care of this. And so he takes a half of the man. The Hebrew word is selah. It does not mean rib. It means half. He takes half his qualities that are in the man. He makes them into isha. From ish comes isha. He makes them into the woman. And so when those two come together, there's a fullness of the picture of God, the image of God that that neither can accomplish by themselves. And this this is one of the first really, truly amazing things in all the Bible. I mean, I mean, people will say, if I ask you, what is the pinnacle of God's creation? You will say man or humanity, depending on who you are. You'll use one or the other of those things. And you'll be right, but you'll also be wrong. Because the pinnacle of God's creation is marriage. 
That's the end of the story. It's the last thing that God creates. It doesn't just happen because he creates two people and they decide to get married. They fall in love in the garden and they write a novel about it and make a movie about it and they, they kiss and, and they get married. No, God makes them from the beginning as a pair, a couple. Male and female, he created them and they bring their uniqueness, these two unique sides of God's nature to each other as a gift and what is formed is, is a oneness. The other thing you've got to see in this scripture is, is that very weak for us is the English here. A man is united to his wife. Some old translations say that a man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves to his wife. But really the inference here is, is a gluing together, a knitting together of two human beings into something that becomes a sacred oneness. So there is something that is happening here that is far beyond a decision or a choice or a man's will. There is something that is of God in this and there is something that is knit together as you're going to see in a scripture in a minute that it is just really more amazing than either can be apart. Now, I need to say here that the Bible is also clear that there is a place for singleness and that some persons have as God's plan for them that they would live in singleness. Paul himself, you'll remember, said it's better that I should remain single so that I can give all my attention to the bride of Christ, all my attention to the church. As you know, some Christians think that's the way pastors should be. And praise Jesus, you don't, because I don't know if I could be the same kind of pastor I am without the support of my wife. But at any rate, what happens here in this instance is that there is a, 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 a magical thing, a mysterious thing, an amazing thing that, that happens, and the husband actually does something that's very countercultural. You go, uh, I don't see that. And the reason you don't see that is because you weren't around when Genesis was written. Uh, maybe some of you almost, but not quite. You weren't around when Jesus spoke to the Pharisees. You don't know anything of Hebrew culture. Now, if you get to go to the Holy Land with me at some point, some of you are going in the fall, you're going to see something there. And what you're going to ask me about it, and I'm going to answer it right now so I don't have to answer that question. So you're going to ask me, Jim, why don't they finish their houses here? What is the matter with these people? I mean, Brenda, if you were to go, you'd go, why can't these people finish a house? Because what they do is they leave rebar, a whole level of rebar off the top of the house. And that's purposeful. Because what they do in that culture now is to build up. They have so little room to work with in some places like in Jerusalem or Tel Aviv. And so they, they build up and all over the east you'll see this. So when a couple gets married, they move into the house, they build another story and then they move into that story. And then they have children, they move down and the old people move up. And it keeps happening that way until you see some houses that are four stories tall. And whenever that happens, you say, rightly so, that's four generations in that home. And that's often the case even now. But in Jesus' day, it was always the case. So what would happen is a woman would bring her dowry from her family and she would leave her father and her mother and she would go to live in the back of her in-law's home. Imagine that for some of you women. You wouldn't like that, would you? But that's what they did because the husband got his occupation 
from his father, just as Jesus was a tecton, either, either an architect or stonemason most likely, or, or a carpenter. He gets this from Joseph, and they move at all indication probably. They're in the back at some point of that carpenter shop, of that house, because the home was the shop. It was the place of business. It was the place where all the family lived. And so what they'd do is they'd add a wing onto the back of the house, and they'd move into that wing. So the woman would always leave her family to go to the man. But the Bible makes it clear here that in this case, emotionally, psychologically, personally, though the couple will very likely be living in the back room behind the in-laws, can you imagine how much those mother-in-laws were taunting them to have children? You, you just can't think of that in our day and our time. But that's what happened The man was to leave the influence of his father and his mother and make his wife the primary influence other than God in his life. This is countercultural and it is revolutionary for its time. And in fact, all the teaching in the Bible on the marriage is totally revolutionary for its time. Not a single place in the Bible do are we told that the woman is owned by the man, but that was the custom and the culture of the day. So the Bible goes against that and has these two individuals that are brought together to form this sacred oneness. One flesh. I enjoy reading a lot of different things, as you probably know. I love to read and, uh, or to listen also to books. And for a period of time, I really got into listening to and, and reading some of the Jewish mystics. Uh, Jewish mysticism is really fascinating. If you're interested in it, I, I, it goes off the rails once in a while. But for the most part, it expands on the Bible in radically different ways than anything else you're likely to hear. And the Jewish mystics made much of this verse, and I think rightly so. And they said there is in this scripture an inference. And the inference is that something that is absolutely mysterious happens in the wedding chamber itself. That is In a couple's bedroom, a husband and a wife who are mutually bound together by the superglue of marriage, which is sex. In their sexual intimacy, there is an actual worship of God that is present if it is held in its proper place. That's amazing and it's incredible. And I think some of you might have discovered it's true. If you haven't, keep searching because it's there. It may even be there for couples who aren't committed to Christ or to God. They may find it through common grace. There may be something of God that they discover in their marriage that they would not see any other way because they're not deeply associated with Christ or with the church. Whatever the case may be, let me say this once and then leave it alone. I dealt with this last week. We in the church are all too prone to make sexuality a nasty, dirty thing to be put on a shelf and never talked about. No, it is something to be celebrated in the bedroom of a great couple who are united in Christ as husband and wife. It is something to be cherished and it is something to be nurtured. And let me tell you, from 35 years of counseling and working with people, your marriage will likely perish without it. It is vital that you nurture this part of your life. It changes through the years, doubtless. It changes according to health or circumstances, doubtless. Got little kids at home? (laughs) It changes, but you've got to find a way to nurture it. I think too often one or the other will seek to control as a lever that peace 
And the Bible says exactly the opposite, different scripture, but I could point you to it in Paul. Paul essentially says the husband owns the wife's body, the wife owns the husband's body, period. It's, this is how it works. So when you look at this, there's a lot going on that's difficult to see in the English. But this gets carried through all the scripture. This is the biblical interpretive hermeneutic. That word we say is the lens through which we interpret. Marriage and also all human sexuality. It is the rubric that appears again and again and again and again. And I'm going to demonstrate that to you by showing you a few places where this is referenced most directly. So let's go to the end of the Old Testament so we can get to the New Testament. We get to the end of the New Testament and we get to Malachi. And Malachi, as you remember, was taunting the Hebrew people for a number of reasons, always that they had fallen away from God. And one of his big concerns was the unfaithfulness of the Hebrew men to their wives. Their tendency to jump from one to another, to divorce people easily. This passage says, God hates divorce. There's no other way to translate it. It says, God hates divorce. Now, that's not to say that you are permanently damned in some way if that's happened in your life. It is to say that at this point, if you're going to move forward, we want to avoid that separation of the one flesh at all cost. At all cost. Malachi says, here's the problem I have with you. He's speaking for God. God says, here's a problem I have with you. You say you love me. You say you're faithful to me, but you're unfaithful to the wife of your youth. You want to cast her aside. You can't be faithful to me unless you are faithful to the wife of your youth. That's how closely knit these two relationships are. So what Malachi says is, did he not make them what? Echad, you can just say it. Echad, one having a remnant of the Spirit. Now, Malachi helps us here, don't you think? He helps us in a way that Paul also does in another passage where God says, I'm always with you in the relationship of marriage. But in this case, we actually see that what God does is to give you a bit, a piece of his own spirit to sustain and hold and bind this relationship together, to protect and preserve it. When you are married in in a committed relationship, a covenant relationship, when you're married in that kind of relationship, God's God's spirit is actually at work holding you together, actually at work building and binding that relationship. Now, the relationship we're talking about here, and this is what Malachi is getting at, is what we would call biblically covenant marriage. Now, what Paul does is he builds a covenant sandwich. So when Paul gets to the therefore section, he moves on to chapters four through six. When he's talked about everything we are and then how this gets described, he begins before he talks about anything with a broad discussion of the church. And we studied that first, remember? And when he talks about the church, he talks about the covenant relationship of the church with God. What is the difference between a covenant and a contract? A contract is a legally binding agreement by which each party agrees to do whatever each party agrees to do. Give a property, pay a price. 
I'll perform this service if you perform this service. And that contract can be legally cast aside and broken completely if one or the other party breaches their commitment. Covenant is different than that. The chesed, the covenant love of God, sustains our relationship with him even when we do not deserve it and perhaps especially when we do not. So God's love sustains the covenant no matter what happens on the other side. Marriage is that kind of covenant. It means that sometimes I may be 90% of the load and Debbie may be 10. Sometimes, maybe more often, she's 90, I'm 10. Whatever the case, whatever it takes on my part to sustain this because it is a covenant commitment. So we're not talking about the legal contract of the United States of America or any other nation here. The constitutionally appointed or acknowledged legal contract. That's a whole different matter. That's not for us to deal with. We'll leave that to the Senate and the Supreme Court because the Senate never passes anything to the Supreme Court. And in this case, we'll say that's out there. But what we talk about inside the church of Jesus Christ is the biblical covenant of marriage. And that covenant is something that you have to give everything of yourself to sustain because God has given everything of himself Luckily for you, there is the remnant of God's Spirit right there in the center of it. We then see it referenced again in both Mark and Matthew, this time by Jesus. It's often said that Jesus never spoke about these matters, never spoke about human sexuality. Really? He hearkened back in shorthand to the Old Testament Genesis 2.24 model. God created them male and female from the beginning A man shall leave his father and his mother, cleave to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. Haven't you read, Jesus said to the Pharisees who'd asked him, can't we divorce if we want to, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female so they could bring their difference to one another as a gift. And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become, Jesus said this, what? One flesh. What word did he use? Jesus did not speak Greek, though we read the New Testament in Greek. Jesus spoke Aramaic, spoken Hebrew. Jesus said they will become echad, like the oneness of God. So they are no longer two. See, Jesus elaborates here. They're no longer two. They are one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no human being separate. Every single wedding I do, I speak these words. Because humans destroy relationships, God sustains great relationships, and marriage is a top priority in this situation. Now, I think we can see just how serious this is. Jesus regards it as serious. The Old Testament is consistent. And when Paul picks it up, he's picking up on that line. So last week I read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 6, this portion of it. I'll just read 15 through 17 today. Don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute, someone outside of my marriage? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is, hello, what? Is one with her. Is one with her. For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Now what Paul's done is a favor for us here by telling us specifically 
that sex is the superglue of this relationship, God-given for that purpose, and that there is something sacred about the marital bed. There's something amazingly sacred about it. So as the Jewish mystic said, it is a house of worship. It is a place of worship akin to what we're gathered in right now. And I'll just be truthful with you. I think these two are tied hand in hand. It is difficult to sustain the sacred relationship that is in your home. It is difficult to worship in your home if you're not worshiping with the body of Christ. This is the covenant sandwich. And likewise, if you're not sustaining that worship center in your home, it really affects affects the way that you're able to sustain worshiping with the people of God. You got to make your own covenant sandwich. On the top and the bottom of it are the church and marriage, and in between are all of these general teachings that Paul gives about every human relationship. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 through 32, and now we're getting to the heart of the matter, Paul picks up on this same shorthand all through the Bible. Remember, the Bible begins and ends with a garden wedding. It begins and ends with one. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then Paul says, this is a profound mystery. I'm glad he said that aren't you? I mean, this is actually a pretty good answer, you know? So, you know, if somebody asks you, and your closest friends sometimes do, you know, how's your marriage going? Especially if you're not married so long. Once you're married for many, many years, they just stop asking. But, you know, when you're young, they'll ask you. They might ask you if you're new, you know, how's the marriage going? And, and some days you go, it's wonderful. And some days you might not say that. So if you don't say that, what you say is, well, it is a profound mystery. <laughs> now listen, let's admit it. Debbie and I have been married 35 years. It's still a profound mystery sometimes. I'm still learning. Still trying to figure it out is a profound mystery. Paul observes that that is the case. Now let's look at the whole passage. There's so much meat here. And it is so amazing that we're like to miss a lot of it. We want to miss the bits and pieces. So we have to start first of all with verse 21 of Ephesians 5. It says, just let's all read this one together. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It does not say submit to Christ and then love each other. It doesn't say submit to Christ and then it says submit to one another out of your reverence for Christ. Now, if you've got an English translation in your lap, and you should, if you're looking at the Bible right now, you may want to hit me up later, but don't waste your time. If you do hit me up, you'll say, now, Jim, in my Bible, verse 21 is under the previous topic. I'm going to say two things to you. Number one is there is no topic heading in Paul's letter. In fact, Paul writes in run-on sentences that my English teacher would have given an F to. He just keeps writing and writing. Debbie's dad has this expression for someone who just talks and never stops. Not that any of us are like that. But he'll say of somebody, and usually it's somebody he knows well, sometimes a granddaughter. He'll say, that girl was breathing through her ears. Didn't even stop to draw a breath. That's how Paul writes His writing is always breathless. 
He just keeps flowing and flowing from one thing to the next to the next. There's not like a stop and say, okay, now I told you this. Now I'm going to tell you this. Never does Paul do that except in the middle of Ephesians. When he says, therefore, he starts a new section. But after that, he just runs on and on and on. So first of all, verse 21, even if it is in the general teachings, it doesn't matter because the general teachings apply to every single relationship in the church of Jesus Christ. Therefore, it applies to everything that comes after. But it is appropriately put right before the next verse because Paul uses the same exact words, the same Greek words, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, let's just acknowledge here, my friends, that all problems in all human relationships would be solved completely if we all submitted to each other out of reverence for Christ. Our worship for Christ becomes our submission, our subjection to each other. Do you agree? And I think you'll also agree with me that every last one of us would have a perfect marriage if we all submitted to each other out of our reverence for Christ. Now, because none of the above that I just said is actually true, this must actually be pretty hard to do. Do you think? It may not be hard for you. It is very, very hard for me. It's difficult. Debbie and I were kids when we got married. I mean, we really were literally kids. I, I, you know, I, I just marvel when I look back at how young we were and how stupid I was. You notice what I did there? <laughs> how young we were and how stupid I was. But we got married. We were so young. And we were two first children. Each of us had two dominant and still have two pretty dominant parents. We were a family, as Debbie's mom likes to say, of type A, she being chief among them. We are, and we were two type A's coming together, and it took us several years to work out this whole thing of who was going to be in charge. I jokingly say I finally recognized it was going to be her. But that's not really the case. We learned to submit together to Christ, to walk together behind him. And if we're each following Christ, then we're walking side by side. It's a co-equal partnership. It's a walk together through life. Once you work that out, marriage gets so much easier. And I'll say after 35 years, our marriage is really quite easy. It really is. I mean, it's got its moments, but it's really pretty easy except for the challenges we have to face together. What you want is to be you and me against those challenges, not you and me against each other in the midst of those challenges. It's you and me for the world, for the sake of Jesus Christ. That's the scriptural portrait of a great Christian marriage. So submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, Submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Now, notice how that sentence is phrased. It does not mean that your husband is your Lord. It means that as you are submitting to the Lord, it becomes easy to subject yourself to your godly husband. That's the ideal that Paul is painting here. The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, when we see this head thing mentioned, let's take a look at it. 
Because headship is often mentioned as a corollary to the previous verse. And we must understand what headship means here. In this case, the word that Paul uses is the word kafale, which literally, literally means source. It can also mean cornerstone, by the way, interestingly enough. So you, you know some other scripture where it fits. But it means source, like head water. So you can see the Old Testament reference. The man was put into a deep sleep. Half of him was removed. The half became Isha. From Ish came Isha. He was the source of the woman. And likewise, we are, men, we are to be the sources of strength and hope and wholeness for our wives. It's a hard task sometimes. They should be able to depend on us for that. And that's what Paul is saying in this instance. He's not saying that there should be anyone dictating anything in your home. And we're going to see that even more clearly in what Paul says next. So, he says, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, a couple things are important here for you to notice. One, guys, this is sort of interesting, but it takes Paul almost four times the number of words, three and a half to be precise, to tell us what to do after he just finished telling our wives what to do. And we all know why, don't we? Because we are stubborn and hard-headed. That's why. Now, in the last service, I invited women to give an amen. I'm going to do it again. Because we are stubborn and hard-headed. That's why. This was your chance. You missed it. You blew it, Karen. We are, we are, we are stubborn. I've worked with men for a long time, and there's a thing I've noticed that is unique about men relative to women. It is true for some women. It is true for almost all men. And that is a man has to be broken in some way before he can truly love and be loved. I don't know whether it is nature or it is nurture or both, but I have seen it again and again and again. I can almost immediately tell the difference between a man who has been at some point broken and one who is not. And that brokenness often comes from our acknowledging pain that we have caused or not been willing to acknowledge. We can talk about that another time, but just say Paul has to talk to us a whole lot more than he does to our spouses. And what he asks us to do is to agape our wives, or specifically agapate, which is a form of agape. And agapate is the expression of God's love. Now, remember, I talked about covenant. God's love sustains when we break our part of the deal. God's love is permanent when we are temporary. God's love is all-giving when we are selfish. God's love is perfect when we are imperfect. God's love is what we're asked to offer to our spouses. And it takes a long time for us to learn even to approximate this. Now, Paul could have said a lot of other things here, and they're all implied. So he could have said, oh, men, I want you to philosophize your wife. I want you to love your wife as a friend. Surely you should love your wife as a friend. He could have said here, you should storge your wife, storge your wife. So I want you to care for her and nurture her. And surely he meant that. And of course, the one we all want to talk about is we want him to say, husbands, I want you to Desire your wife's, eros, romantic desire. All of those are included in the package, but each of them are expressed in a form similar to the love, the self-giving, selfless love of God, and that tempers every single other expression 
of love. It is preeminent. It's number one. It's premier. It is the primary thing. For us to love our wives like that, Paul goes on to explain, looks like Christ who loved the church and what does it say? Gave himself up for her. Now, friends, don't gloss over those words. This is not merely to say that the cross of Jesus and his sacrifice is the model. It is saying that, but it is to say that Jesus willingly chose that cross, so it is to say he gave himself up for the church. And the expectation, husbands, is that we give ourselves up. Self, which we protect and preserve. I talked about it a few weeks ago. With all of our might, we break down the barriers. We open it up. We release it. We give ourselves up for our wives. Jesus did it for the church to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word. And that's what he's asking us to do for our wives. And to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. I love the word radiant. It's a good translation of the Greek here. A few weeks ago, uh, we had a party, and at this big party, uh, Debbie looked ravishing. She was stunning. She always is, but she really was. And I was doing what you do when you host a party, so we weren't together the whole night. We were together before, we were together after, but during the party, we were walking around talking, you know, to people, hosting. And so from across the room, I get a text from a friend in this congregation, and the friend says, your wife looks radiant tonight. I wrote back and said, my wife always looks radiant, which is true. But I know why she radiated. I know I had a piece in that. I owned a piece in that. And the reason I did is because before we left, I said to her, I love you with all of my heart. And I said, you look stunning. You look amazing. You look beautiful. And it is my job to tell her that the beauty within is so amazing that she can display it without. And other people see it. You know, you know it when you see it. Do you know what I'm talking about here? You know it when you see it. Now, we've been done a great disservice by, in our culture, all of the romance stuff that tells us that we're supposed to feel in love all the time. No, your feelings will follow what you do and what you say. You control what you feel in the long run. It doesn't mean you'll never feel discouraged or depressed. You will. But overall, you control that, and they will follow what you do and what you say. Now, this is my favorite part. I'll tell you why in a minute. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one, in this case we really should say man, no man ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for his body just as Christ does for the church, for we are members of his body. Now, let's talk for a moment, if we could, about this thing about loving your wife as you love your own body, because I guarantee you, Paul knew he was talking to men because women do not get this passage. They do not even remotely understand it. Now, I, I didn't know that for a long time. I was reared in a family of three boys. 
I thought we all felt pretty good about ourselves. That's how it was. Then I, I, I got this family with a wife and, and two daughters. Even the dog was a girl. Everything in my home was a girl. And it was an education. Oh, my goodness. I never realized how much you women loathe your own bodies. Now maybe some of you are over this, but I don't think I've met you yet. You'll hear people talking. They go, hey, you know, how do you think I look? I look okay. Well, I don't know. I could, I could, I could lose a, a few pounds. Look, I, I know women who couldn't afford to lose an ounce, and they still will say they're fat. This is something that is nature and nurture, I think. You women need to know this is not how we think. I'm going to be honest with you because your husbands probably don't want to tell you this, but I'm going to tell you that it's true. I have a little nephew. He got his hair cut. He passed a window after he got his hair cut. My brother called to tell us all about it, and he, he just was laughing at the top of his lungs because he told his brothers because we all understood it. So my nephew's walking by, and he sees himself in the, in the, in the window, and he goes, I look good. And I'm going to tell you the truth, women. That's what we say whenever we see ourselves. <laughs> Come on, guys. You know it's true. Doesn't matter how fat, old we get. We still look in the mirror. We do. We step out of the shower. We look in the mirror. We go, <laughs> I look good, right? I mean, you know, I, I'm 57 now. I don't look near as good as I used to. But I think, I think I still look pretty good, you know? So I don't worry about this stuff. I just never do. I love my own body. It's just no big deal. So this is why he's talking to men here. He could never have told women this. If he told a woman this, love your husband even as you, own, as you love your own body. You'd be walking around all the time going to your husband. You are fat and ugly. You date all the time. That's what you'd be doing. But men aren't like that. We, we've been given this certain measure of ego for good and for bad. And so when he says that, he understands he's speaking to us men and he's saying, look, your wife needs your affirmation in order to feel the way that you feel. I don't know why it's true. I will get somebody that pounds me for this and argues with me. Be my guest. If you disagree, that's fine. I'm just telling you, I've worked with so many couples over the years. I've seen it and seen it and seen it. Paul knows what he's talking about here. A man who loves his wife as he loves himself, places her above him. Her needs are greater than his, more important than his. After all, no one ever hated their own body. They feed and care for their body just as Christ does for the church. For we are members of Christ's body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become a chad, one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. See, this is the thing is that for Paul, when he talks about the church, then offers this general teaching, then gets to marriage, he's not talking about two things. He's talking about one. He's talking about the oneness of God as it is displayed in these basic foundational institutions of the world God created, the church and marriage, the two sanctuaries, the two sanctuaries of the worship of God in any great culture and certainly in any great church. Paul's just talking about the same thing, but in different ways, in different relationships. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife 
must respect the husband. A couple things here to note. First of all, Paul doesn't say you might want to think about. Not in this instance. He does not in this instance say you might consider. He says each one of you also imperative must love agape like Jesus, self-giving, give yourself up for his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. Now, I don't know if Mars and Venus is even cool anymore. This stuff comes and goes like yesterday's lunch. But the truth is that this is Mars and Venus before Mars and Venus was cool. Because again, don't pound me for this, but I've seen over the years that our needs are a little different in this case. And because we don't understand that, we often trip over the possibility of a great marriage. And the reason is because our base core need is slightly different. What I have discovered that women seem to want is to be absolutely adored by their husband. I'm going to tell you, men, if you adore your wife in this way, she becomes your standard of beauty. She is what beauty looks like, and everything else pales by comparison and gets measured against it. You don't trust the culture to tell you what is beautiful. You don't trust the movies or whatever you're looking at to tell you what is beautiful. That's what's beautiful because that's what God gave you. And it becomes more and more and more beautiful as the years wear on. And somebody who's been married way longer than I is gonna write me and tell me, you have no idea how true that is. Well, 35 years have been enough to teach me that. That's my standard of beauty right there. Nothing else compares. Nothing else comes close. I adore her. She's the center of my world. She's everything to me in this world. She's second only to Christ and my affiliation, and the two run closely together. But men, you know this is true. We want to be our wives' heroes. And what we desperately need is for them to regard us, to respect us. What often happens is that men respect their wives but don't adore them and can't understand why their wives do not feel intimately connected. And women, they adore their husbands or admire their husbands without respecting them and then understand why the relationship is difficult to sustain. And this gets undercut all the time. Once in a while, Debbie and I will bump into a couple that we really enjoy, but we don't enjoy their marriage and we have to stop hanging out. You ever had these people? You know, they fight the whole time you're with them. They bicker all the time. And then you get home and you're like, it makes you bicker too. There was one couple in particular that we just said, we just don't want to be around them anymore. We love them. Individually, they're fun. Together, uh uh-uh. Doesn't work. And the reason is because that what would constantly happen in this case is that the woman would just needle her husband constantly. She was constantly pointing out his faults in front of everybody and constantly airing things that he'd done in front of everybody, dumb things that we all do. She was constantly, and she thought it was funny. (laughs) And then she would always say, you know, I love you, honey. And I wanted to go, no, he doesn't have a clue you do because this is not how he feels love. And over time, that couple's marriage did not last and it did not surprise us at all. Paul gets it right here. This is what's necessary and what's needed. Now, Paul says so much here that I could spend five sermons on it, but I've spent one, and it's enough. You get the point. 
Resurrection breakthrough restores God's image, not just in us individually, but in our marriages. And our marriages uniquely present God's image to the world. The wholeness of God's nature and character. Our neighbors should be able to see it. Our coworkers should be able to see it. Our children should certainly be able to see it. Our church should be able to see it. For God's sake, the people close to you should be able to say, I see something in you. It is a mystery to me. It is the spirit of God being displayed in the nature and character of this relationship. And that does not come without a lot of discipline and a a lot of work and it is worth every bit of it because it will return to you tenfold the investment you made in it. I mean, after a while, to be honest with you, marriage just gets easy. It was hard at a point. It just gets easier. It just does. You know, you just get to the point where you so adore this person, right guys, that you just can't imagine your life without them. At some point that may happen to each of us, and it will be painful, but the pain will be worth it. We were on vacation recently just for a little while, a few days, and um, we were in the home of another person. It's kind of a mansion-like home. There are like nine, ten bedrooms in it, something like that, and we were in one, and uh, that night, Debbie had a rough night. The first night we got there, I don't know why, but she was a little sniffly, and so she was snoring. I know nobody else does this. I don't snore, but uh, she does. I definitely snore. She sleeps more soundly than I do. So anyway, it's a difficult, I didn't sleep that much that night. And so when I went down the next morning, my eyes were all bleary. Of course, it was, a, it was a time change between here. We were in California. So it was a time change and all that, but it just didn't sleep well. And, and the woman of the house said, how did you sleep? And I went, oh, not so good. And she goes, oh, I'm sorry, why? And I said, well, Debbie's snoring. She laughs. She said, there are 10 bedrooms here. Just pick another one. I said, you must be kidding. Debbie's right behind me. I didn't know it. I said, a bad night with Debbie is better than a good night anywhere else. She said, oh, and I turned around and Debbie went, oh. <laughs> but it's true. A bad day with Debbie is better than a good day with any of you. A bad minute with Debbie is better than a good, day, good minute with any of you. I, I mean, this is... This is what happens. God creates something over time that is quite mysterious and amazing. You'll have to ask her how she feels. I can't speak for her. I can say that from my point of view, what a gift God gave to me. And I want it for everybody. I want it so desperately for followers of Jesus to understand how to give into and receive this gift and how to give it away, how to really love and be loved. This is important for everyone. The author of Hebrews says marriage is to be honored by all, interestingly enough. Then he goes on to say, be careful about sex and money. (laughs) The two big problems of marriage right there, sex and money. And he says, but don't worry, God is with us always in the midst of this. His spirit pervades it. The marriage bed is to be protected by everyone and marriage is to be honored by all as the image of God in his fullness that he created it to be. That means we should be championing each other's marriages, right? We should be championing, assisting, facilitating, edifying each other's marriages. That's one of the greatest functions of a great church. 
When somebody runs into a wall, tell them, I've been there before, we made it. You can too, you can get over it. When, when somebody's in a time of difficulty, walk alongside them. And when they're celebrating, you celebrate with them. You've got to be all in because you are all new in Christ and because you are going all out in Jesus' name to serve others. Another way we talk about the number one is to say that someone is or something is one of a kind. Now, saying one of a kind is a rather interesting statement because of a kind means they're of a particular ilk, meaning they are like everyone else I'm talking about. So if I say that some human being, and I might well say this of some of you, boy, they are one of a kind. I could mean that in a lot of different ways. And what I mean is they're a lot like them, but they're unique within that pool. And if your marriage is one in Christ, I need to tell you it is one of a kind. It is of a kind because you will wrestle with similar problems to others. Forming the relationship will be similar in some ways. The joys and sorrows will be similar in some ways. But you need to understand that your marriage can serve in some way that only your marriage can serve. It is one of a kind. That is, God has chosen it. God has anointed it. And God means to use it in a specific way. God is calling you to a specific mission with your marriage, and no one else can fulfill that mission. Your your mission, your marriage is one of a kind. It's one of a kind in others' ways too. Each of us is going to face different challenges in different ways. I mean, in our case, probably the hardest thing we ever dealt with was, was the, Ill, the severe illness of one of our daughters and the possibility of losing her. I mean, that literally just scares the hell out of you. It affects everything in your life and your relationship for a period of time. But we got closer together and we handled it. And now, of course, as many of you know, we're dealing with an illness in Debbie's life that she'll have for the rest of her life. It's degenerative. I mean, it will get worse. But we can deal with that. It's just a part of the challenge that God has given to us. I don't love it. It stinks. It's life. But a bad day with her is better than a good day with any of you. Any of you. You will have unique challenges and unique joys. You can't look at someone else's marriage and say, I want that. You can say, let me figure out how they got some of the qualities and model that. But at the end of the day, you've got to let God work in your personality, in your marriage, in your way, to work within your life with his measure of your spirit to bring about a marriage, a oneness that is one of a kind. My friends who are married in the life of Columbia, I know you well, most of you, and your marriages are one of a kind. There is not another couple like you on planet earth, and there never has been, and there never will be. And God has uniquely chosen you to model his image in specific ways, in specific places. And that will happen because by his power, you are one. 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 Father, make us one as your people, as a congregation, and within the heart of us, make those couples that are a part of us one in a truly sacred and mysterious way. And reveal your image through the covenant that you've given to the church and to marriage. 
and use each of us powerfully in our relationships with one another. And Father, we know we can lean on you because you are one. You are perfect and you never change. Everything we measure by your nature, your character. Help us to embody your character in all that we do together because we truly are what we do, not what we say we wish we were. And Father, if anybody who's listening to me today who understands somehow for the first time that something is accessible and available through your oneness, your power, your grace, and your mercy that they desperately desire, I pray that as they ask Jesus Christ to come into their lives and as they pray to live for your glory for eternity, that you would seal them by the power of the Holy Spirit and use this church, or if they're listening at a distance, some other church, to nurture that oneness for every part of their lives that you intend. Make us whole. Complete us by your power and grace. Thank you, Lord, for loving us forever, even when we fail to hold up our side of the deal. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, friends, you go ignite passion for Jesus Christ from Metro Washington to the world. Have a blessed week. I'll see you soon. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Metro D.C. or Northern Virginia area, we would love to worship with you at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions, service times, and information about all the incredible things happening at Columbia, go to columbiabaptist.org. That's columbiabaptist.org.